All right. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. I get the privilege of preaching one of my favorite passages in the Bible this morning. Um, if you would, please rise out of reverence for the reading of God's words if you're able. Um, I'm just going to read these first 10 verses. And I hope I don't electrocute myself. Um, Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, You were dead. Notice the words in here. There's some key words in here and phrases. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. O oh, great God of our salvation, your salvation is very great, very amazing. God, you are full of an immeasurable riches. You are full of immeasurable grace. You are rich in mercy. We thank you for breaking in. We thank you for making us alive together with Christ. We thank you for faith. God, we praise you, and I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and light your words on fire in our hearts, that we might experience you deeply this morning, that we might worship you with zeal and passion, that you would become our wisdom. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You all may be seated. There's a quote, this is one of the best books, this is an excellent book, it's called The Life of God and the Soul of Man by Henry Skugel, um, and he writes this sentence in here, and this is written by a Scottish guy back in a few centuries ago, it says, in a word, the difference, and he uses the word betwixt, I'm going to use the word between, <laughs> in a word, the difference between a religious and wicked man is that in the one, divine life bears sway. In the other, the animal life doth prevail. It refers to it as the animal life. Not the most flattering of terms to describe a man who has not been born again or a woman who has not been born again. But pretty much we have two types of people. What he's saying is there are two types of people in the world today. Those who have been born again and those who are, have not been born again. There are two different natures. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature. 
And then he says, the old has gone and the new has come. So we have two different people. You have the old and you have the new. Those who have been born again and those who have not been born again. And I was just talking to Jenny just the other day on our back porch. We were talking about our, heart, our hearts beating. And, uh, I mean, you can just put your hand over your chest. You can put your fingers up here and get, and get your pulse. It's really remarkable if you, if you just think about it. What, where is the battery? That was a question Jenny asked. What, where is the energy? Where, where is it coming from? How, do, how does it notice to continue to beat and to continue to stay in rhythm? I mean, Methuselah lived 980 years. His heart beat for 980 years. Where is the battery? Where does it, where, it just beats. It just keeps coming. And, and then I was thinking about how we've got three newborn babies in our, in our midst. We've got one on the way. Lucas and Brienne are uh, one still in the oven. Um, but the heart begins to beat, uh, and our Father created these little bodies. Um, but we can't just stop there with the physical. Uh, also, what our Father did when He knit these babies together in their mother's womb, as uh, David writes in the Psalms, in the secret places, He also knit together a soul. So God doesn't create just physical beings, physical human beings, he also creates souls. He creates them to be eternal. These are eternal souls that God has made. And then they come out of the womb, and there's this sort of, I mean, it's got to be, a, it's a rude awakening, right? They come out of this warm, safe, dark place. They're being fed exactly when they want to be fed, and no, no sooner or no later. And then they come out of the womb, and then there's light everywhere. And their eyes begin to water because they've got to squint to take in all this. And it's not warm anymore, it's cold. And there's this rude awakening, and here we have a newborn baby. And no one would argue that these babies, once they begin to cry, once they begin to breathe their first breath, no one would argue that these babies are not alive. But it, but it leads me to ask the question, what does it mean to be alive? Not just alive physically. What does it mean to be truly alive? I mean, obviously we are here this morning. We are hearing. We are seeing. We've tasted coffee this morning. Uh, we have been feeling. We're smelling. We are alive physically. What about spiritually? 2 Corinthians chapter 4.16, Paul writes this. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self, the inner self is being renewed day by day. Now you could translate that inner self, inner man, and other translations besides ESV do translate it as inner, inner man. So there's this outer man, outer woman, outer human being, and then there is an inner self. And so whereas our outer self, our physical body has different parts, you know, we've got all the different organs and all the different senses and all these things. So does our inner self have different parts. Listen to this. Jesus, before he is getting ready to die, he, he finishes his work. And then he says what? Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he's quoting the Old Testament. Then Jesus, uh, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then Paul, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
And then Jesus, out of the treasure of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus, again, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Jesus, let him who has ears, let him hear. These are all facets of the same diamond. These are all parts of the same body, the inner self. The inner self has many different parts. It's an inner man, this spirit, soul, mind, heart, seeing, hearing, feeling, perceiving, comprehending, creativity. They are all facets of the same diamond, the same inner man. And so we know that the outer man is alive. What about the inner man? The inner man is what Paul is getting at here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're going to discuss the new birth this morning. And it's just an awesome doctrine. I, I love it. Um, I want to start with verse 10. Let's start with verse 10. Sometimes it's, it's good to go to the end of the story uh, to get what's, what the rest of the story is all about. I, that's why I love to watch a good movie multiple times. Because, uh, you know, you get to the end of the story, you know what the guy was trying to say throughout. You can pick up on things the second time through that you didn't pick up the first time through. Except for the movie Inception. I watched Inception, and I've watched it three times. I still have no earthly idea what, what that movie was about. Uh, but here in this passage, I think we can, we can learn here in verse 10 what the point, the concluding point that Paul is driving home. He says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. That's the concluding point that Paul is making here this morning. And I love, I love the creatureliness of this. I love the, hum, the human beingness of this. The, the, that we are clay in God's hands and he's put us together. And I love that organic uh, feel that you get here. And I think, you know, you can uh, think about it like Silas. Uh, for some reason, I thought of Silas. He, he made this uh, plane out of Legos. He got some new Legos this week. And he put the thing together in like 30 minutes. I was really proud of it. I, I couldn't do that. But he puts his plane together in 30 minutes. And in the past, he's made these tanks and these uh, cars. And then he puts uh, little things on the side of them. I always have to ask him. They're usually guns or cannons. Uh, I have to ask him what it is, though. But the point is, you know, even my son, age six, age seven years old, he creates things for a purpose out of Legos. And we are all made in God's image. He's made in God's image. He does that because he's made in God's image, because God is like that. God creates things, and he's got a purpose for them. And, 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 and then we, in infinite, in infinite wisdom, our Father creates us to function in a certain way, to behave in a certain way. We are his workmanship, and we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And just as my son has rights over that Lego plane, you don't believe him, just go try to ask one of his sisters what happens when they try to take it away from him. <laughs> ask him what happens if they break it and it falls into pieces. Ask him why, why he cries about that. In the same way, God has created us for a purpose. He's knit us together in our mother's womb. He's given us an inner self. And he's made us in a purpose. And he has rights over us. That's offensive to some people. But I think if you really understood what Paul's teaching right here, it would not be offensive at all. It would be liberating. It's, it's truly liberating to know that we are not our own, 
that we have been bought with a price. And that the creator of the universe who is wise and sovereign and good and full of love and rich in mercy and full of immeasurable grace has rights over us. And he will protect us infinitely better than my son could ever dream of protecting a little Lego plane. So let's, how did Paul arrive at this conclusion of verse 10? Let's, this, is, this is good. We're, we're going to get into it here. Let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And it doesn't, this is not, doesn't start out very flattering. Does it? It's not a very flattering way to start things out because he says, and you were dead. Not the most flattering news uh, to start out with. The Greek word for dead there is nekros. Nekros. And that word is used, uh, it's been translated dead 122 times in the New Testament. Now here's a couple other ways it's been translated. Look at Mark chapter, you don't have to flip there. Mark chapter 9, verse 26. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it, the demon, came out and the boy was like a corpse. Necros, that's that word. Like a corpse. So it can be translated corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. Necros. And then you go to Romans chapter 4, verse 19, another way it's used. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. That's necros again, barrenness. No one would argue that Sarah's womb had life in it. It is barren. It's a, like a wasteland. So, the bottom line, the point I want to make right here is that necros is never translated as sick in the New Testament. It is never translated kind of dead or sort of dead or near death. It is never translated like that in the New Testament. Now in Kentucky, I lived in Kentucky for eight years. They had a phrase that they used. I heard an old Kentucky preacher say one time, graveyard dead. That's, that's the kind of, that's necros. Graveyard dead. Now, I was studying church history in seminary, and there was a, a guy I read about named John Cassian. And John Cassian, this is back in the 4th century, he, Cassian and Augustine would, would have these debates, and they went back and forth about what dead really meant uh, in, in Scripture. And Cassian took the approach of, you know, he, he thought that man had this, uh, this spark. He called it a spark like a spark of goodwill. And it somehow man was able to conjure up this spark. And God would look down and he would see this spark in man. And it would please God and God would fan that spark into flame and cause that man to be born again. Well, we don't read of any such spark anywhere in the New Testament. There is no spark in necros. All you see in necros is corpse. All you see in necros is barrenness. And just as a corpse cannot and will not jump up and do jumping jacks, so will not a, uh, a corpse raise its hands and worship to God. It cannot. It will not raise its hands and worship to God. So the next question that Paul gets into, he says, you were necros, you were dead, you were barren, you were a corpse in what? In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So this death that he's talking about, it's not physical because we're talking about still being able to walk, 
He's clearly not talking about the physical man. He is clearly describing the inner man. And this inner man is dead in sin. This inner man or inner self is walking in sin. And just like a swimmer swims in water, this inner man swims in sin and in trespasses. Let's go back to the Old Testament just very quickly and rifle through. First of all, you've got Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Genesis 6 verse 5. And we see that this teaching is not new to the New Testament. This teaching is found throughout the Scriptures. The, the Bible uh, talks about a curse that we go under. And now we are in, under this curse. Genesis 6.5 The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So every intention, evil, how long? Continually. It never takes a break. There's never a time out. It's evil continually. It's swimming in evil. Swimming in wickedness. Isaiah 1 verse 5. The prophet writes, Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Psalm 51, verse 5, David, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And then look at, flip with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Going to read 9 through 18. Paul is getting ready to quote David. He's getting ready to quote the Old Testament and making these points here. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, the whole world, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, not very flattering. Not going to see that on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, you've got your best life now. You're not going to see Romans 3, uh, 9 through 18 there because that's not very flattering. It doesn't make us feel very good about ourselves. But the, the point in all this is that the New Testament and the Old Testament and all of the authors all would agree that the heart is in a desperately bad condition. We are in a very bad condition. And a quick parenthetical statement right here I'd just like to make. Anyone that tells you to listen to your heart, to follow your heart, that's foolishness. Music, you listen to pop radio all the time. It's all about believing in yourself. It's all about following your heart. All about listening to yourself. It is foolishness. Because what we see in the Bible is the heart is desperately sick and deceitful. Who can trust it? 
That's what the Bible says about your heart. You listen to your heart, and you take that counsel, and you follow that counsel, it will lead you straight to hell in a handbasket. Do not listen to your heart, ever. I tell my children all the time, do not listen to your heart. Why did you disobey? Here's why you disobeyed, because you listened to your heart. Your heart will lead you to hell. Never listen to your heart. The Bible says you need wisdom. The Bible says that wisdom does not come from your heart, does not come from your head, does not come from college. The Bible says that wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. What that means is there is no insight and there is no wisdom apart from knowledge of the Lord and apart from the Holy One. There is no wisdom anywhere. Wisdom comes from God. It does not come from you. It does not come from Oprah. It does not come from Dr. Phil. It does not come from the evening news. It is not coming from a politician. Thank God. It is not from your science professor. College is simply one fallen head talking to another fallen head. What you need is wisdom, and wisdom comes from God alone. And Paul writes here to the church, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, and you were not passive in it. You were walking in it. You were swimming in it. You were walking in sins and trespasses. You were an active participant in your sin. You were a rebel, and you were a rebel guilty of cosmic treason against the creator of the universe. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, the world will come and tell you, by contrast, that you're a free spirit, that you're a free agent, that you make the rules, that you're the master and commander of your ship, that you're the master of your destiny, that you are the authority, that there is no authority outside of yourself, that the world is your oyster. You know what that is? That's worldly foolishness. The Bible knows of no such thing. And the irony is, you are actually a follower. You were never a leader. We were never kings. We were never queens. The Bible says you followed the prince of the power of the kingdom of the air. The Bible says here in our passage today that you were a son or a daughter of disobedience. Ephesians chapter 2, 3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. No, you were never a king. You were never a queen. You were a slave. That's what the Bible teaches. A slave to what? A slave to your will. A slave to your passions. A slave to your desires. A slave to the prince, Satan. Philippians 3 verse 19 Paul says they, they walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You are a worshiper. You've always been a worshiper. Whether you believe you were or not. Whether you've understood it to be that way or not. You've always been a worshiper of something. Paul writes, if you are not in Christ, you are a worshiper of your belly. Your God is your belly. Your God is your will, your God is your heart, your God is your inner self, and you are God. And it's fitting, it, 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 it all makes sense when you go back to how the curse took place. The serpent comes and says, if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like what? You'll be like God. 
I want some of that. And then we, we've been given this appetite. We hunger and thirst, not after the righteousness that comes from Christ. We're born hungering and thirsting after ourselves. We want to feed ourselves. We want to advance our kingdoms. It's never your kingdom come, Lord. It's always my kingdom come. That's the heart of an unregenerate human being. So, there we are. That's the mighty man. A slave. In actuality. Never kings. More like the serpent crawling on their bellies, eating the dust of the world. We were by nature children of wrath. Let me read Psalm 52 to you. Psalm 52. I love this. I, could, I just love this. Psalm 52. We're going to get to some really good news here in a minute. This is the black backdrop. We're going to get to the stars here in just a minute. Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, almighty man? You catch the sarcasm in there? Almighty man. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. And then Psalm chapter er, 9. Psalm 9. Nineteen and twenty, and this is the way we ought to pray. What we're getting ready to hear is a is a prayer, and it's not a prayer for God to deliver the United States from crooked politicians. It's not a prayer to make the United States of America great again. It's a it's the missionary cry. It's the heart of missions. It's the heart of evangelism. And here it is: Arise, O Lord! Let not man prevail. Let not man prevail. He says, let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. We need to be humbled before the Lord. And only the gospel can bring us to our knees in humility and rescue us, not so much from Satan, but to rescue us from who? Ourselves. We are the problem. The problem's not out there. The problem's not the guy that sinned against us and hurt us and all that. Ultimately, the problem is, is in here. We give Satan way too much credit. And Satan does deserve credit. Don't get me wrong. But ultimately, we stand before the Lord in judgment one day. We're not going to be able to point and play the blame game on, He made me do it. The, the, thumb, the, the finger pointing out, the thumb's pointing back at me. I'm the problem. I'm my own worst enemy. And we come out of the womb as our own worst enemies. Satan, all he does is dangle. He just throws some food out there. But our God is our belly. Our God isn't Satan. We go and we eat what we crave. We eat what we want. We do what we will. Our problem is our will. 
We always argue about the freedom of the will and the freedom of the will. Yeah, there's truth that the will is the will is free. Free to do what? What does our will want? What do we want? What do we will? That's the problem. I was telling our small group, I used this illustration before with our small group, so bear with me, those of you that have already heard it, but if Jenny, say it's our 10-year anniversary, it's coming up this summer, and let's just say that uh, for our 10-year anniversary, I'm going to cook for her. And so we, we have some babysitters, we send the kids over to Mimi and Papa's house, and uh, I blindfold her, I have her put on her best dress and all this stuff, and I put the candles on, I got some Frank Sinatra going in the background, and then, I, and then I've got all this, I'm just being really suave. And then I go, and what I do is, for dinner, I take this canned dog food, and I put it on a platter, I put it in the microwave, and, and cook it for a couple of minutes to where it's really good and steamy. And I put one of those little silver lids, I don't know, I can't remember what those things are called. And I put some of the green, uh, what is that, the little parsley or whatever on the outside, make it all, fix it all up. And I bring it out to her, I take the blindfold off, She's excited, tears are in her eyes because I'm such an awesome husband. And then, and, then I, and then I pull the lid off of this thing, and there before my wife is a steaming pile of dog food, canned dog food. You're my wife, what are you going to do to me? You're probably not going to be too happy at the very least. What an anticlimax, right? Now, let's say I take that same plate of dog food, and I take it out to my 100-pound golden retriever. How long is that dog food going to last? A nanosecond right? What's the problem here? What's the issue? The issue is the appetite. My wife has an appetite for one thing. My dog, my animal, has an appetite for another thing. Our problem is our will. We have a will problem. We have a heart problem. And our heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so my prayer, when we pray for Carbondale, when we pray for our lost family members, we pray for our lost co-workers, our prayer to be, let not man prevail. Let them not damn themselves. Because if it was left to me, guess what? I would follow my heart straight to hell. I would eat my way straight to hell. And our prayer should be, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not man's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There was a time in our lives when we walked as enemies of the Christ, much like spiritual zombies, the walking dead like serpents eating dust. We were not lovely. We were never kings. We were never queens. We were never masters of our destiny. It's the great hoax. We were blinded. The new parents in our church are hearing the alien cry, I call it. Uh, and they, they, those babies are really sweet. And uh, I don't know, maybe your baby never cries. I don't know. But I know, I know mine, I called it the alien cry. When they get hungry. And when they don't get what they want exactly when they want it, you, you know it because you hear the silence. that They start crying, and then it's... And you know what's coming. It's amazing how much oxygen they can get in those little lungs. And then they unleash it. When they, when they don't get what they want when they want it, they unleash it. So, I mean, if you want to understand the nature of sin and what sin is like, go have babies. Just go have a, go have a bunch of babies. You'll understand exactly what the doctrine of sin is. Now, here's something else you'll understand, though. As a Christian parent, you'll understand the gospel a lot better. Because how do we respond when those babies are screaming in our face, demanding that they have what they want exactly when they want it? We give them grace upon grace upon grace. And we give them love upon love upon love. So here we are. What does the Bible say about us? 
We need to quit thinking about what our, the philosophers say about us, what the psychologists say about us. Our problem is not an empty love cup. Our problem is sin and a dead will, and we need grace. We're not splashing around lost at sea. We're not drowning out at sea asking for life preservers. We are a bloated corpse down in the bottom of the sea, chained to the bottom of the sea, and we need someone to swim down and rescue us from ourselves. We are without animation. So what does Jesus do in the New Testament? He goes and he begins to heal people physically, and he does that, and I believe in that. But he heals all these different types of people. You've got a mute man, a deaf man, a blind man, a paralytic, a demoniac, a hemorrhaging woman, prostitutes. Do you, have you ever thought about yourself spiritually in those, in, that, in those ways? Because that's exactly who our inner self was like. Jesus comes and touches us, and he heals us by grace. We were Lazarus. You want to know the truth of it? Spiritually, we were like Lazarus, wrapped up like a mummy. They left him in there for days in that tomb. He was ripe. He was a ripe, stinky corpse. And then what does Jesus do? He comes to him. Romans 7, 24, this is us, spiritually. Wretched man that I am, Paul writes, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verses 4 and 5 in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, the greatest, some of the greatest two words in all of Scripture, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. John chapter 11, 43-44, when He had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out. He obeyed his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with the cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. That's exactly what he did to you spiritually. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's not just out there, like he went to a hill far away, he went to Calvary, he went to Skull Place, and it's all out there. You've got to realize that your salvation is also in here. He came near. God drew near to you, and he took out, I'm getting ahead of myself, took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh, beating forever. Your heartbeat, your spiritual heartbeat will never stop beating. It will always have energy. Do we really understand mercy? We know about grace. Here we have a God who is rich in mercy. Do we have any idea what mercy is? Uh, one way that you could think about it is mercy is the reason we're not in hell. Grace is the reason we're in heaven. Mercy is the reason we're not in hell under the wrath of God right now in this very moment. It's the mere pleasure of God, as Jonathan Edwards writes. We are hanging by a spiderweb thread over hell. And the only thing keeping us out of hell right now in this very moment, this is the absolute truth, it is the mercy and pleasure of God. He owes us nothing. You want justice? You want Him to be fair? How are any of us left standing? We are standing by mercy alone. 
That's mercy. Then He doesn't just give us mercy. He is rich in mercy. Thank God He's infinitely rich in mercy and in patience that He endures me. But then He's also gracious and He gives us righteousness and He gives us heaven and He gives us Himself. If God were to take away His hand of mercy, where would we be? Who could stand? We are so arrogant. We walk around with our chests out, our nose stuck up in the air, like we've got it all together. And there's not one person sitting in this room right now that is not alive by the mercy of God. Arrogant man boasts in a freedom that he never had. Look how awesome I am. Look how supreme I am. Look how mighty I am as a man or as a woman. It's sand. It's dust. God is the only truly free being in the universe. He is absolutely, perfectly free. And in mercy and grace, God chose freely to make you alive together with Christ. What does it mean to be alive? We asked it at the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Let's let the physical illustrate the spiritual. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground freely and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. That word there for breath is pneuma. We get pneumonia out of that word. He put life in his chest. He breathed life into his chest. There was a moment when you took your first breath physically, and if you are in Christ this morning, there was a moment when you took your first breath spiritually. And some never do. Ask yourself this morning, if you want to be humbled, ask yourself why you did. Where did your spiritual breath come from? Where did your spiritual heartbeat come from? Where did your desire for the Lord, if you have any inkling of desire and hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God, where did that come from? There was a time when you were awakened from death and rose out of the dirt of sin. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, God says, God promises, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God doesn't do that, we're damned. God doesn't do that, we're left to us. I'm left to my heart. I'm left to my blindness, my deafness, my muteness. We are in desperate need of the grace and mercy of God a lot more so than we could ever imagine. Verses 6 and 7 doesn't stop there. Now we've got the mercy of God, God being rich in mercy. Here's what He does though in grace. Grace is an unmerited favor. It's a gift that you did not earn. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. 6 and 7, God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show or demonstrate the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
So here's the contrast. Here's you and here's God. Here's you immersed in sin, baptized in sin, buried in sin like Lazarus. And here's God raising you up out of that into newness of life. And that's what heaven is. You want to know what heaven is? It is going to be God showing you forever and ever and ever the the immeasurable riches of His grace. You will never be bored, not even for a nanosecond. You will be thrilled. You will be excited. You will be energized. The joy of the Lord will be your strength forever and ever and ever. And you will have a sinless capacity to enjoy Him forever. And that's what I find so hard to believe. I have no problem believing that I'm, that I'm sinful. That's the easy part. I have no problem looking at myself in the mirror and knowing what I am, knowing who I am, knowing what I've done, knowing all of my imperfections, knowing all of my impatience with my children, with my wife, knowing all of my shortcomings. I know all that very well. The hardest part for me is to look at myself in the mirror and know who I am and to believe that Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the hardest part. To believe that God has raised me up and has given me everything in Christ. To believe, as Martin Luther has taught, for I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where He is, there I shall be also. Where He is, where Jesus is, there I shall be also. That's the hardest part for me to believe because I know who I am. My problem is I'm looking still to myself and my ability to save myself. And you'll never have freedom from anxiety doing that, freedom from depression doing that by looking within. You will find freedom and liberation from anxiety, freedom from depression, freedom from doubt, by not looking at yourself, but by looking and beholding the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. That's where freedom is. That's where life is. So Paul writes, and this is a four here in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Some in here probably have this passage memorized. But don't notice the four here. It could also be translated, therefore. For, here's like a conclusion. Because of these first seven verses are true, here is Paul saying it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. Who is this all about? Who's the master and commander? God is the master and commander. Greatest news in the world. Who is the gospel? God is the gospel. Who is the good news? God is the good news. What has God done for you? He has justified you. He's, he has, according to our previous passage in love, He has predestined you for adoption through Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's what He's done. You know what else He did? He gave you the power to believe it. He gave you the ability to believe it. He gave you the strength to, be, to believe it. He gave you the eyes to see it, the ears to hear it. Let him who has ears, let him hear. Jesus Christ. You have ears to be thrilled 
in these things, to be blown away by these things, guess who gave you those ears? God. The same God that died for you on Golgotha gave you the ears to hear this news and to find it to be beautiful, not foolishness. This is not a stench of death to you. This is a fragrance of life. Why does it smell so good? Because God gave you a new nose, spiritually. So we have a great salvation, not just out there, but in here. By grace you have been saved. Not a result of works, lest no one should boast. And I think when we get to the end, or actually the beginning, I should say, when we get to the beginning of our new life in Christ one day, when this earth and all of its sin and all of its curse will be no more, I don't think we're going to be boasting in our freedom, boasting in our liberty, boasting in our sovereignty. I think the only thing that we are going to be able to boast in is the sovereign grace of God. Aslan, uh, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I love to read it to our kids, but I love it to read it for me. Um, I love in the line, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, Aslan has been resurrected. Uh, off of the concrete table has been broken in half, and Aslan goes into the, the, uh, the domain of the, uh, the White Witch, and he goes into her castle. And in her castle, there are all of these animals and all these uh, creatures that have been turned to stone by the curse of the witch. And Aslan goes, he starts going to them one by one, and he breathes on them. He blows on them. And you can see all the, uh, and C.S. Lewis, the book's better than the movie, but you, you get the idea of the, the, the rock crumbling away and the stone crumbling away, and all of them become animated. And they come to life, and they begin to follow, they follow Aslan in the battle. That's missions. That's what our prayer should be. Let not man prevail here in Carbondale. Let not man prevail in our households with our children. Let's pray for God to take out hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh. And let's worship Him when He does it. We get to sing about it. It's beautiful. The best part of all this story is it's true. This isn't fiction. This is reality. This is what you're meant to see. So let's pray and we'll have, uh, we'll, we will uh, have Hank uh, come to lead us in, in worship. Father, your mercy is the theme of our song. We, we rejoice. Your steadfast love is higher than the heavens. Your righteousness is higher than the mountains. God, your steadfast love is all we have. You are not all we want or merely all we need. You are all we have. Father, we can't make our physical hearts beat. God, we can't make our spiritual hearts beat. Uh, we are in desperate need of you and your energy. We are in need of your joy to be our strength. Father, I pray that you would renew to us this morning again the joy of our salvation You'd make it come alive in our hearts again. God, I pray that you would uh, melt and chip away and, and cause hearts of stone to crumble. Here this morning, I pray you'd save our children young, that, uh, that you would not delay, that you would not let them prevail, but that I pray that, God, that you would prevail over them, that you would uh, be sovereign over us, that you would prevail over our church. 
God, I pray that you would be sovereign over Carbondale and prevail over Carbondale. God, I pray that you'd be sovereign over the world and prevail over the world. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Proverbs 14.12 says, There's a way that's right for man, and its way ends in death. And uh, I just thought that was, that was a great word.